Lord, we give you thanks for this day, for the opportunity that we've had to worship together as a a minuscule expression of the worship of your people across the face of the earth and the worship that is taking place even now unseen to us uh, in your presence among countless angels and archangels and and including uh, the souls of just men and women made righteous who have been uh, gathered into uh, the paradise of God who know your presence and delight in communion with you. Uh, Lord, uh, our worship this morning is just a, a small, small glimpse of of that worldwide uh, and even heavenly worship. And yet, uh, Lord, it is very much a part of all of that. And we praise you um, for uh, that invitation, for that honor, uh, and for the experience of being in your presence uh, today. And now as we even think about these things this evening, we pray for your, for your presence with us. You, Lord Jesus, uh, are not only exalted, uh, glorified, and reigning, but as is so clear from this passage, you are, you are present, you are in the midst of your people, you are near to your people, uh, and we thank you for that and ask you, uh, even this evening, that you would, would walk among us and minister to us as we uh, look at your word and think your thoughts after you. And may our hearts be encouraged as we uh, gather this evening, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Okay, this is, uh, this is the third session in this um, series that we began about a month ago. Uh, next Sunday evening, we have a covered dish dinner and um, uh, kind of a vision refresher. So we won't be meeting uh, next week, but then we'll resume um, in two weeks. And let me just give you uh, your assignment, if you will, for two weeks from tonight. If you are um, using this little commentary by Derek Thomas, what we'll be doing in two weeks is looking at the seven letters uh, the letters to the seven churches. And so that would uh, mean that for two weeks from tonight, you'd want to read uh, chapters two and three in, in this commentary because we'll look at all seven letters. But you've got two weeks to get ready for that. So um, that's what we'll be doing uh, two weeks from tonight. Let's take just uh, a minute and review some things. Let me um, just review but I understand uh, the, the basic theme and purpose of the revelation to be, um, you know, if you, read, if you read six different commentators uh, on the revelation, they'll, they'll spin this in, in slightly different ways, uh, give you their own sort of take uh, on what the purpose is. But again, I, I, I'm, I've read the six or seven commentators, so I'm sort of distilling what, what I see in the book and what I get from them. Um, and here's what I understand to be the basic theme. Christ is king and sovereign over everything. He is reigning now, and he will return. And when he returns, he will overthrow and eradicate evil. 
that's the basic theme, and, and it actually represents the basic movement of the book as well. The book moves in the direction of those closing chapters, the final uh, overthrow of evil, the destruction of Babylon, um, and then the emergence of the new heaven and the new earth in chapters 21 and 22. So Christ is king and sovereign over all. He is reigning now, and he will return to overthrow evil. And that being the basic theme gives us this basic, very pastoral purpose, and it is to provide encouragement to Christians in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of struggle, um, hope in the midst of suffering. That's the, that's the basic purpose um, of the book, as, as I understand it. So, big picture, Jesus is king. Big benefit, encouragement for God's people. Okay? Um, and then, just uh, a, a kind of a reminder of something that we talked about last week, which is the basic timeline, or the way um, the history of redemption unfolds in the scriptures. Um, I created this last week, and um, there were a couple of questions about it, so I've recreated it for us. And, and let me just sort of rehearse what, um, what we talked about last week very quickly. This line represents the creation, and these letters, uh, C and F, represent sort of the first two chapters in in this uh, unfolding story uh, that the Bible presents to us, creation and then fall. And from, in, from the time immediately after the fall, God begins to disclose his purpose of redemption. And that purpose is, um, is present for us in, in that initial promise made in Genesis 3.15. As God speaks to the serpent, um, uh, judging the serpent, uh, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He will crush you on the head. You will bruise him on the heel. And what God is promising in that, that very first promise um, is what we see finally accomplished at the end of the revelation, which is the overthrow of the serpent, uh, the destruction and eradication of evil, and the restoration of everything uh, to its intended design and purpose. So creation, fall, the initial promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15, and then across the whole of the Old Testament, that initial promise gets enlarged and um, gains color and beauty and diversity and loveliness, and we could talk about that for months and months and months and months. Um, But basically what you have across the whole of the Old Testament period um, is, is a looking forward to the time when this initial promise that gets enlarged across the whole of the Old Testament comes to its fulfillment. And with the, with the incarnation of Jesus, which is this black arrow, with the incarnation of Jesus begins the fulfillment of everything that is promised across the Old Testament. Okay? Now, I've, I've drawn this black line across the bottom here, to represent what the Bible refers to as this age. Okay, Beginning back here in the Old Testament, uh, the, the Old Testament conception or understanding of time was this age and the age to come, two ages, separated by the arrival, the appearing of this 
this great conquering Messiah. Well, when Jesus comes, he inaugurates the age to come. Okay, the age to come comes with the arrival of Jesus, but it doesn't come in its consummate form. It's inaugurated, and, and so that is represented by this red line we have on, on, with the coming of Christ, the beginning of the fulfillment of everything that is promised back here, the inauguration of the age to come, and we looked last week at all of those phrases that refer um, from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets to the age to come. Phrases like, in that day, at that time, afterward, in those days, all of those phrases, they're synonymous kinds of phrases, and they all refer to this period of time, basically the Messianic age. So the incarnation of Jesus inaugurates it. The cross is at the center, obviously, of all of history. This red line going up represents Jesus' ascension, And this dotted line coming down represents the outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit who brings to the church the age to come. Okay? Let me give you a passage. It's really a a very interesting passage in this connection. It's 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10. Um, I'll, I'll give you the whole passage. It's First uh, Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 13. But it's a passage in which Paul is making reference to um, the Old Testament, to the period of Moses. Moses is referred to in the first five verses. Um, and then uh, verses 6 through 10, or 6 through t- uh, 13, um, uh, sort of enlarge upon that. Um, And then Paul writes in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example or as types. That's the word that's in the text, as types. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And then this very interesting phrase, upon whom the end of the ages has come upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's a language, or a phrase, language, that is very much in keeping with this idea that with the coming of Christ, then the ascension of Christ, and then the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church, the age to come has come upon us. It is here. It is present. So you have, you have parallel lines during this, partic- this period of time This age continues. It's not fully brought to a close. The age to come has been inaugurated by the arrival of Christ and this whole complex of things, life of obedience, death on the cross, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Spirit. That all inaugurates the age to come. And then at the end of history, Christ will return and this age will end. The black line ceases But the consummation continues out into eternity. When Christ returns, he finishes what he started. Everything is consummated. Everything is completed. And we're ushered into the new heaven and the new earth for for all eternity. Okay? So that's the basic timeline. That's how uh, we understand the Bible to work, if you will, with respect to the flow of history. So for those of you who have been around for a while, you've been in my the, the class that I taught 
God's big picture. Creation, fall, redemption, promise, fulfillment, and then consummation or restoration. Okay? That's the basic scheme and architecture of the Bible. And that's all for review. Okay? Now, um, since many of you are reading this, um, what I think is a really helpful little commentary on the book, I thought I would just put up here for you how Kidner, um, Kidner, Thomas, Derek Thomas, outlines the book. He outlines the book uh, according to seven visions, right? Numbers, we're going to see in a couple of examples of this tonight. Numbers are hugely significant in the Revelation, highly symbolic. Um, and I, I think, frankly, and, and he acknowledges this in the, in the first chapter, it's very, very hard to come up with a, with a neat and tidy um, sort of outline of the book. Because, frankly, it's very layered. There are lots of nuances to it, lots of, frankly, really cool and interesting things that are going on. But for the sake of ease, he gives us this outline, and I find it to be helpful. Seven visions, the first of the visions is chapters 1 through 3, the letters to the seven churches, and then the vision of Christ in chapter 1. Vision number 2 is chapter 4 through 8, 1, and that is the seven seals. Vision 3 is chapter 8, verse 2 through chapter 11, the seven trumpets. Vision 4, chapters 12, 13, and 14 what I've called, he doesn't call it quite this, but what I've called seven scenes of cosmic conflict. And when we get there, I, I, think, I think you can see that there is uh, some, some sense to that, some sanity to that. And then the fifth, fifth vision, chapters 15 and 16, the seven bowls. And then uh, the sixth vision, 17 to 19, the downfall of Babylon. Uh, the last and final vision, chapters 20 uh, through 22, excuse me, the new heaven and the new earth. So it's a, it's a simple and I think a pretty helpful way to view the, the structure of the book. Um, but um, again, when we, get to, uh, look to, when we get to chapters 4 and 5, um, I'm going to suggest to you, again, another way that you can look at the book, um, another sort of structure for it. And, and, and honestly, this is some of the beauty of the Revelation. Okay, it's, it's a bit like um, understanding what is going on in the Revelation is a bit like taking Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. If you're, if you're a trained conductor, I mean somebody who's a trained composer and conductor, and you're given this magnificent symphony, you have two conductors, three conductors who who all three look at this symphony and they, they find certain nuances and, and emphases and themes and repetitions of themes and inversions of themes and all of these kinds of things. You, you turn it over to three different people and you're going to, you'll hear, you'll hear lots of, you'll hear different things from each of them. Okay. And it's because of the, it's because of the beautiful complexity of the music. Well, I think you have a similar thing going on in the Revelation. It's just the, the, the wonderful and delightful complexities uh, of the book. So this is just to help us kind of uh, have a structure for thinking about the book and uh, making our way through it. Okay? 
Now, let's look at uh, chapter 1, and uh, promises, promises, okay? I really do want to try to get through this material in the next 30 minutes or so, and then let you um, interact with everything that we've talked about so far, whether tonight or we're going back to last week. So I've, I've got four basic points to make here as we look at the first chapter, though there's a, there's a lot more that could be said. Uh, we, we looked at some of the first chapter last week, um, uh, but uh, just continuing to look at it, uh, four things that I'd like to have you um, sort of pay attention to as we, uh, as we dive into to this uh, first chapter. And the first thing is this. It's kind of a, kind of a neat and very interesting Trinitarian greeting, okay, the tr- a Trinitarian greeting, which you find in verses 4 uh, and 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and I love this, the ruler of the kings on earth. I love that. The king of the kings and the lord of the lords. It's time for the hallelujah chorus. Um, but just, just notice this. That this is a, 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 a Trinitarian formula. Uh, the, the last part of verse 4 um, and then the first part of verse 5. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Um, That uh, little phrase, um, I think, uh, pretty obviously is expressive of one of the attributes, a couple of the attributes of God, him who is, who was, and who is to come, uh, namely his being, that he does exist, and that he is eternal in being. He is, he was, and he is to come. Um, God has no beginning. God has no end. He always has been. He is right now. And he always will be the everlasting God. But then notice that little phrase is connected to this next phrase, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now here's a good place for us, I think, just to make at least an initial comment about numbers in the Revelation, the phrase, the seven spirits who are before his throne, is a figurative representation of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Him who was and who is to come, God the Father, eternal in being, the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. There is the Trinitarian greeting, Father, Spirit, and Son. The seven spirits... Um, are a representative way of referring to the Holy Spirit. And seven, and we'll find this um, when, when we uh, work our way through the book, when we think about the churches, uh, various other things, uh, seven is a number that refers to perfection or wholeness. So the, the seven spirits, again, is, is a representation of the perfection of the Spirit who is before the throne. It's an, interesting, um, it's an interesting image if you think about it because as you make your way through the Revelation, 
the throne, this idea of the throne, is mentioned as many as 50 times, somewhere between 35 and, and 50 times. And with only a couple of exceptions, either the Lamb or God himself or both are on the throne. And, and that's, that's just hugely significant for understanding the book. So here is the throne, and here is, on the one hand, the one who is and who was and who is to come upon the throne, and then the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, who is upon the throne, and the seven spirits who are before the throne. And, and what you have in that Trinitarian greeting is actually a, a kind of a wonderful picture of what the, the historic um, articulation of the relationships among the persons of the Godhead is. And that relationship is described in the creeds uh, that God, the Father, exists eternally and the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Okay? And the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. That's classic historic Christian theology. The Father exists eternally, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. So the seven spirits before the throne, a symbolic representation, a numerical representation um, of the perfection of the Holy Spirit. Okay, And and that's how numbers are going to work in the Revelation. And you need to be prepared for that. Okay, You need to be prepared for the fact that numbers have, in some cases, a literal representation, as they do with respect to the churches. But most of the time, they have this theological symbolism that they represent. Okay? So there'll be a lot of sevens, there'll be a lot of tens, there'll be a lot of twelves, there'll be some fours, there'll be some three. And those, those numbers, we'll see, have a significant symbolic value. So, number one, Trinitarian greeting. Number two, the addressees, the ones who are receiving this letter. Who are the addressees? Well, look at um, verse 5, second half of verse 5. Start again at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who are the addressees? Who are the ones who are receiving this revelation? Well, they are the ones who, have, who are loved, who have been freed from their sins by his blood, and who have been made a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, one of the things that, um, that we're going to want to understand, I've mentioned this before, but it, it bears repeating. One of the things we're going to want to understand and really be on the lookout for 
is all of the many ways in which John employs Old Testament categories and imagery and imports those Old Testament categories and imagery to communicate the things that he wants to communicate. And it really begins in this first chapter, and it begins with these phrases and this language. He has made us a kingdom and priests to his God. Flip back to Exodus chapter 19. You're going to get in Exodus 19 the background to this language that John is using. Just so you have the the setting, uh, the people have left Egypt. They have um, crossed the Red Sea, and they have come to Mount Sinai. They've experienced God's power and God's deliverance. They've seen the army of Pharaoh decimated. They have experienced deliverance through the waters that became waters of judgment for the nation of, uh, of the Egyptians. And now they are at Sinai. And God is making provision through Moses to give his law to his people. Well, I, could, I can't preach a sermon about this, but I can make the comment. It is really, really important always to keep in mind that redemption precedes law-giving. Redemption precedes law-giving. And here's the significance of that. God doesn't give his law to his people so that they might become his people. God gives his law to his people because he has redeemed them to be his people. It always works that way. It works that way on the other side of the cross. It works that way on this side of the cross. There's continuity with respect to that. Right? How, remember this morning we read the Ten Commandments? What's the first thing that is said? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. I've redeemed you to myself. And for that reason, I'm giving you my law. I'm giving you my word. I'm giving you my wisdom so that you might order your lives in a way that glorifies me and benefits you. It always works that way. Okay? Now, that's that's kind of where we are here. God is making provision to give his law to his people. And verse 3 of Exodus 19, The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I can't help making this observation. When you read Revelation chapter 12 and there's a reference to eagles and the wings of eagles, right there. It's right there. It's importing Old Testament imagery and language to describe what God is doing right now with respect to his church. Okay, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, here's what the New Testament understands. The New Testament understands not just a beginning with the Revelation, 
but actually beginning with Peter, where I'll, where I'll take in just a second, that that language of being a kingdom of priests is fulfilled in the church. It's fulfilled in the church. John is writing, when he writes in about 95 AD, he's writing to seven churches in these seven places across Asia Minor, and those churches are made up of Jews and Gentiles. But they all together are described as a kingdom and priests to our God. So what God promises to do in Exodus 19, back here on the promise side of things, finds its greater fulfillment in the church of Jesus Christ. If you read Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians, he makes a big, big deal in chapter 2. And this is tremendously important for understanding what's going on uh, in this period of history right now. He makes a big, big deal in in Ephesians chapter 2 of the fact that the wall of hostility separating Jew and Gentile has been torn down through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the cross of Jesus Christ, so that out of the two, he has made one body. He has made one body. He's made one kingdom. And, and what's really wonderful and delightful is that, that he, back here in Exodus 19, God declares his purpose. His purpose is to create a kingdom, not a kingdom that has just one priest, but a kingdom which is a kingdom of priests. And that is fulfilled. John is telling us in Revelation 1, these are the addressees. Who are the addressees? They are those who have been loved, who have been freed from their sins, who have been made a kingdom, a kingdom of priests to our God and Father. Let me have you look uh, for, um, for just a minute at 1 Peter 2. This is, this is just this is wonderful stuff. It's another sort of idea that we could camp on for um, two or three hours. This, this idea that God's, that, that, that the gospel tears down and eradicates all of these distinctions of all kinds, beginning with the distinction between uh, Jew and Gentile, so that there is one people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. Here's 1 Peter 2. Um, this is the first six verses. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You hear the language that, uh, that, that Peter is using as he writes this letter. And he's, if, you, if you go back to um, the first couple of verses of First Peter, 
um, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing this letter to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God. He's writing to Christians who are scattered. Again, this is what is uh, present-day modern Western Turkey. He's writing to to these Christians who are scattered all across what is a largely Gentile region. There are certainly synagogues in these places. Um, but he's, he's writing to congregations, and, and again, the commentators will tell you this, he's writing to congregations that are largely Gentile in composition and makeup, and he's using all of this language in chapter 2, this language and these phrases, that any Jew, it would have resonated with any Jew, but he's applying those phrases now to the church, both Jew and Gentile. Okay, chosen and precious, you are a holy priesthood, um, you are a spiritual house being uh, built up uh, as living stones into him who is the, the chief cornerstone. And then down in verse 9, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Where does that come from? Exodus 19. I brought you to myself that you might be for me a treasured possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So through those verses, Peter uh, is just doing what John uh, is doing in the Revelation. He's taking all of this Old Testament language and imagery, importing it from the Old Testament, but now applying it to the church, which is the fulfillment of everything that is promised back here concerning Jesus, the living stone, and those living stones who would be attached to him and would be built up into this spiritual house. Um, by the way, just, a, just a, a little note, I mentioned this this morning in the sermon, it probably flew over your heads, but um, I'm used to that, that's okay. Um, it's very significant to me, and I'll, I'll, I'll challenge you to do this, very significant to me that in the New Testament, whenever the temple is referred to, as is the case here, whenever the temple is referred to, if it is not the literal temple that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24 and in the related passages uh, in the other Gospels, wherever the temple is referred to, It is either that God is the temple, or Jesus is the temple, or the people of God are the temple. Okay? After those references in the Gospels, in the letters, uh, and, um, uh, and in the Revelation, the temple is a reference either to God the Father, to Jesus Christ himself, or to the people of God. So that's why when we come, uh, when we come, for example, to chapter 11 of the Revelation, again, I, um, I'll, I'll remind you of something I said last week. I, I, I want to use the language of the Bible the way the Bible uses its own language. Okay? Now maybe, maybe that... It gives you excedrin headache number 21. But, but all I mean by that is I want to understand how the Bible uses this language and use this language in ways that are consistent with how the Bible uses it. 
So when you come to chapter uh, 11 um, uh, of the Revelation, we read this, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, what is the temple? Is that a reference to a literal physical structure? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. And the reason I believe that it's not referring to a literal physical structure is because throughout the New Testament, when temple is used, it is used either with respect to the people of God or Jesus himself, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again, or God the Father. I think we're constrained to use the language of the Bible the way the Bible uses its language. So, you know, what am I saying in all of this? Simply, simply suggesting what I think is a wonderful and marvelous and beautiful and deeply encouraging thing. As you read through the New Testament, you will see, all, again, all of this language that's imported from the Old Testament connected to national Israel, the, the, the literal physical descendants of Abraham. But now it gets an application that is far more broad. And that application is to this one people from every race, nation, and tribe and tongue that is gathering, that God is gathering through the proclamation of the gospel. Okay? So who are the addressees? They are those who have been loved by God, who have been freed from their sins. They are a kingdom and they are priests to our God with all of the significance that that has based upon all of those uh, images and pictures that you get from the Old Testament. Okay, two more points here. Third point, we get in um, Revelation chapter 1, a vision of Jesus as glorified and exalted. Okay? We get a vision of Jesus as glorified and exalted. Let me read these verses. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Uh, clearly, and we'll see this more clearly, I think, when we look at the passages that provide background to it, but Christ uh, ruling and reigning, coming on the clouds. Uh, every eye will see him. He's exalted. He's glorified. Uh, verses 13 through 15. Um, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." Uh, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This vision uh, of Christ wrapped in, in what I believe John intends for us to understand, wrapped in priestly glory. If you go back to Exodus, I didn't write down the chapters. I know 48 is one of them, I think. But if you go back to Exodus and read the descriptions of the clothing of the high priest, that clothing um, is, dis God says that clothing is for beauty and glory. 
The clothing of the high priest is for beauty and glory. It's, it's to picture for us, as I think I mentioned last week in the sermon, it's to picture for us what was lost at the fall. Beauty and glory, among a whole lot of other things, were lost at the fall. And now here is this, this portrayal or depiction of the clothing of the high priest, and it is, it is for beauty and glory. In other words, God's purpose in redemption is to restore what was lost, to make us a kingdom of priests, and to clothe us all in beauty and glory, the very beauty and glory of the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So those, those phrases, the long robe, the golden sash around his chest, that is all reminiscent of, of uh, the garments of the high priest. Um, but then this other imagery comes from a couple of passages, particularly in the Old Testament. One I think that we've referred to already, and that is Daniel 7. Uh, so let me have you look at Daniel 7. Verses 9 through 14. Did we look at this a couple of weeks ago? Three, four, maybe? Not last week, maybe the the first session. Don't remember, but it's good to be reminded. Now, I'm going to read this whole passage, and you just listen. You can pick out the phrases that John has brought from this vision um, in Daniel 7 um, and uh, used to describe the glorified Jesus. Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. By the way, when we get to Revelation 4 and 5, that language is going to show up again. Myriad upon myriad of angels surrounding the throne as they worship the Lamb night and day. Um, The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Very important phrase we'll come to in a second. In verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you catch the language? catch the phrases? Um, Head like pure wool, one like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven, approaching the Ancient of Days. See, that's that's, um, Jesus through John, picking up this imagery and this language of Daniel 7 and then applying it now to Jesus, applying it to Jesus. He is called the Son of Man. Um, Verse 7, I read verse 7 because Revelation 1-7 says, they will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, now 
let's tie, uh, let's tie some things together here. Let's connect a couple of dots. Revelation 1.7 takes us back. John's statement, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Revelation 1.7 takes us back, actually, to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Getting your exercise tonight, aren't you? Racing through these passages. Acts chapter 1, we can start at verse 6. This is uh, Jesus' last conversation with his disciples before his uh, ascension. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, none of your business. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his, own, by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and it'll be time to go to work. It'll be time to go to work. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said to the men of Galilee, get to work. Get to work. That's not in there, but it's in there. Okay. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How did he go? On a cloud. How's he going to return? On a cloud. Acts chapter 1 is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Acts chapter 1 is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. One like a son of man approaching the ancient of days to receive from him glory and dominion and power. Um, When you think of the ascension... Think enthronement. Okay? Don't, don't think so much going up, <laughs> although we did. Although up is all a matter of perspective, if you think about it. Right? The globe spinning in space. Who knows where up is, where down is, where north, where south. It's all arbitrary, okay? But he does go up. But don't, but don't think spatial dimensions so much. Think theologically about this. This is the, Acts chapter 1 is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, a prophetic vision in which Daniel sees one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days, coming on the clouds of heaven to receive from him glory and dominion and power. That's what is happening here. Jesus is now having accomplished his work on earth, his life, death, resurrection. He is now being enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords, And to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he has put every enemy under his feet, at which time he will turn the kingdom over to the Father that God may be all in all. This is enthronement. And it's a fulfillment of Daniel 7. And what John sees, or actually what Jesus is promising through John in Revelation 1-7, is simply a reiteration of what is said here by these two angels. He's going to return in the way you saw him go. 
He will return on these glory clouds. And when he returns on these glory clouds, every eye will see him. And at that time, the passage in Philippians will be fulfilled. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, Verse 7, I'll just give you this reference uh, because we don't have time to look at it. Uh, But verse 7 of Revelation chapter 1 also includes language from Zechariah 12, verse 10. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So when, when Jesus returns on these clouds of glory, his people obviously will celebrate, but those who are not his people will mourn and wail. Because Jesus' return means judgment. Okay? Now, on that note, and I'll um, conclude and and finish up uh, the fourth point really quickly and leave some time for you to ask questions. But look look back, if you you can, look back at Daniel chapter 7. Because this is very important, I think, for understanding what is going on in the Revelation. Notice Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And then at the end of verse 10, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. What you have in in Daniel chapter 7, again, is a prophetic vision, a looking into the future, seeing the Ancient of Days And one like a son of man, the son of man not only being enthroned and being given dominion and power and glory, but the ancient of days with the son of man entering into judgment. Judgment, the judgment of the nations. Okay? I'll give you another passage. You can look at it. It's Ezekiel 2, verses 8 through 10. That's the passage that provides the background for the scroll that the Lamb receives that has the six seals, or the seven seals, the scroll that is closed. If you look at Ezekiel 2, verses 8 through 10, that scroll contains words of lamentation and woe. Why? Because that scroll contains words of judgment upon the nations for their unbelief. And that really, that really represents, the, again, the whole flow and movement of the revelation. It's a movement in the direction of judgment. It's a movement in the direction of the final overthrow of evil. So that when Jesus returns on the clouds on which he departed, that means that judgment has finally arrived. Okay? So, what do we have? We have a vision of Jesus exalted and glorified. He is the one like a son of man who has approached the ancient of days. To him has been glory and dominion and a power and power and authority. So he is exalted and glorified. But then we also have the vision of Jesus in the midst of his people. Okay. I said this a couple of weeks ago in the service of worship. Um, I think it was last, maybe it was last week. Just reminded you that there are these two great attributes of God, I mean, you know, among others, two great attributes of God, his transcendence and his eminence, his being over and above and his being near his people. 
And that's what you see in Revelation chapter 1. You see Jesus glorified, exalted, the one fulfilling Daniel 7, to whom has been given power and dominion and authority. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is ruling and reigning over all things for his church, moving all of history in the direction of the final overthrow of evil, entering into judgment with the nations. But while he is that, he is also this glorious high priest. Remember? He's clothed in the glory of the high priest. He is also this glorious high priest who walks in the midst of the lampstands. He walks in the midst of his people. He is present with his people. And those lampstands uh, represent the light that originates with Jesus, but by virtue of the church's union with Jesus, the church now in the world becomes the light in the midst of the world. Seven lampstands, again, representing wholeness and perfection, the church as a whole, and Jesus is present in the midst of his people. Transcendent in glory, present in tenderness and affection and power with his people, walking in the midst of his people. Now, what we're going to see when we we move on to the letters is that Jesus knows his people. (laughs) Because he's present with them, because he walks among them, he knows them. He knows their struggles, he knows their sins, he knows their needs, he knows how to give what they need. And so through the letters, we see Jesus in the midst of his people, walking among his people, speaking words of encouragement, speaking words of rebuke, speaking words of promise and hope, okay, as he is in the midst of his people. And and this is really going to be fun when we get to Revelation 4 and 5 and we see we see this picture of heavenly worship, which is going on right now. We're going to see Jesus surrounded by myriad upon myriad of angels. And what we're going to understand is that that worship, that heavenly worship, gets imaged by earthly worship. And that what we do, and, and Zach and Glenn, listen to what they say before the service. And listen to what they say in their prayers. Zach and Glenn have both mentioned this. Our earthly worship is participation in that heavenly worship. And Jesus is here in the midst of our worship, leading us in that worship. Our worship is heavenly worship. It is us going up into heaven. It is heaven coming down into the midst of the earth. Okay? I I say this all the time. There's more going on here than meets the eye. Way more. And if only the veil would fall for just a second, we'd end up like dead men, just like John was when he saw Christ in all of his glory. But let's just know that there is this constant interaction between the risen and glorified Christ and his people. Okay, There there is a real thing that is going on as Jesus walks among his people. Okay, that's enough. Four points. The greeting, the addressees, Jesus glorified, and Jesus present with his people. I failed again, but we've got a few minutes. So um, let, me, let me see if there Ray, I want to hear what you have to say, but I want to give somebody who hasn't maybe been in a position to ask a question or make a comment the opportunity to Paul. As I understand it, the, the reform view of Revelation, we've spiritualized Israel, whereas more Christians than, than the reform faith, uh, take a more literal view of the book of Revelation. Uh, with the uh, independence of modern Israel, 
have, has our uh, or your views changed at all about the role of Israel? <laughs> Israel today versus the Israel of yesterday changed? It, it, it hasn't changed my eschatology. It hasn't changed my understanding of the flow of redemptive history. I, I will tell you, Paul, at this sort of earthly level, what it has done is reinforce my, my um, view of the faithfulness of God. God has preserved that nation. I mean, it's remarkable across the centuries how God has preserved the nation Israel. Now, when I say that, I'm not speaking in, in the kind of historical redemptive language that is, that is reflected in this timeline that I've described for you. Here is what I believe Israel's central and primary function has been and was. Their primary function was to give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's why God called them, set them apart, was faithful to them across all of these centuries. And now that that Redeemer has been revealed, that Redeemer through the church is fulfilling his greater purpose of gathering a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, forming them into his, into his people. So, I mean, kind of bottom line, I, I don't see the reestablishment of the state as, as the fulfillment of predictive prophecy. I, I, I just don't. If, and I know that's, that's maybe shocking to, to some of you, but, I, but I, I just don't see it that way. Um, in fact, with respect to national Israel, if you read things that John says about the axe being laid at the root of the tree, and then you consider the destruction of the temple uh, in, in uh, A.D. 70, those, those both textual things and then historical anecdotal things suggest to me not that God is finished with Israel, but that Israel's purpose was fulfilled when she brought forth the Messiah. Her existence as a nation was fulfilled when she brought forth the Messiah. And if I read, as I read Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is interacting with his Jewish readers and, and helping them, seeking to help them understand what is going on, I, I understand Paul to be saying that all of those promises um, that God has made are fulfilled in a person like the Apostle Paul who embraced Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah. So his, his burden in those chapters is to reassure the Jews that God has not failed in his promise, but he has actually fulfilled his promise, and he is fulfilling his promise in Jews who repent and embrace the Messiah, and he is fulfilling his purpose by grafting into the one tree from the nations those wild olive branches. This is chapter 11. Those wild olive branches who become one with that tree so that all Israel will be saved. That's how I think he's using that language in chapter 11. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my long answer. Yeah, Alice. Is it correct to say that we who are believers are the Israel? Well, 
Let me let Paul answer that for you. Galatians chapter 6. Verses 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Done. Done. I mean, you know, that was, that was the whole struggle at the, at the first church council, the Jerusalem council in chapter 15 of Acts. Who gets to be a member of the church? Do you have to be circumcised before you can become a member of the church? And the answer of the church was no. No, no, no. And, and part of what provokes Paul to write this letter to the Galatians is confusion over that very fact, the matter of circumcision. Peter and even Barnabas being swayed from walking in a way that's consistent with the gospel. They were caving into the Judaizers who were insisting that you had to be circumcised in order to be admitted to the church. No. Fulfilled in Christ. It's, it, and it's really wrong to say done away with. Let, let, let's not use the language done away with. It's not that circumcision was done away with. It is that circumcision was fulfilled, folks, in the greater circumcision. What is the greater circumcision? What is the greater cutting off, cutting away, shedding of blood? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where circumcision is fulfilled. That's why it's no longer necessary. That's why we have a bloodless right by which people are admitted into the church because the blood has been shed. And everything that is promised and prefigured in that right of circumcision, the pain of it, the anguish of it, the bloodletting of it, the cutting away, the greater circumcision is the cross of Jesus Christ. So it isn't that it's done away with. It is that it is fulfilled. Okay? It's fulfilled. And so Paul is saying now, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. All who walk by this rule are the Israel of God. Paul's using that language right there, applying it to all who walk by the rule that he has just enunciated. So, Paul, that's... I'm sticking with Paul. I mean, yeah, he uses that language to, to describe us. Yeah, Henry. I understand you say that the Messiah coming through the Jews, there's no more for them to do? Except to believe. Except to believe. Except to believe. Yeah. So the preservation of the scriptures, that wasn't their job? Oh, well, okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but can I go back to what I said? The thing that was at the heart and center and the primary reason for Israel's existence was to give birth to the Messiah. So I think that the creation of the state, which came about by somewhat supernatural means in 1948, that had that was nothing. It, it didn't have to happen. Mm-mm. Somewhat supernatural means? Is that are you? It didn't happen except at the last moment. There's a Brazilian things like that, Henry. I mean, I'm not discounting it or minimizing it because I, I'm, what I you know, said was I do see God being faithful to this people across all these centuries. Well, 
No, no kidding. Nothing happens without his testimony. Yeah. Right. So all these things that we just mentioned, certainly it wasn't a roll of the dice. No, absolutely. And we, we have to keep in mind that there is going to be this remnant to deal with. Uh, I'll be interested to see how that discussion Well, well he, he, again, again, let me take you right to Romans chapter 9. I'll do it right now. I mean, you know, kickoff is in 25 minutes, so we got time. The question is, how do we understand this idea of the remnant thing? Okay, have to give me a second here, because Paul uses remnant language. Where is it, Glenn? Yeah, okay. Chapter 11. Now, you know, you've got, you've got 9 and 10. You've got 9 and 10 leading up to chapter 11, right? And it is in chapter 9 where Paul deals with this mystery of God's electing providence. Okay? And, and I believe what he's dealing with is is what any Jew would have been wrestling with at the time. Okay? I mean, a complex of questions. Has God failed in his promise? What about Jews who reject the Messiah? What is the answer to that? Well, the answer to that, according to Paul, is election. There is an elect nation, but there is an elect people in the midst of that elect nation. It's the Jacob and Esau thing. Okay? Jacob is chosen. Esau is not. And, and Paul is using that as an illustration to answer this question of, I believe, of why it is that, that some of the Jews rejected Christ and some of the Jews accepted Christ. Well, it all has to do with the mystery of election. There is an elect people in the midst of the elect nation. And that elect people in the midst of the elect nation is the remnant. And it is in that elect people from the elect nation in whom the promises God made are fulfilled, okay? And they're fulfilled by virtue of their union with Jesus. So uh, chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And what's the evidence of that? I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abram, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone have left. They seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, no longer on the basis of works. So that, I think, Henry, is is the answer to the question of the remnant. There there is an elect people of whom Paul is is a principal illustration, prime illustration. There there are those Jewish Christians that say that all the Jews will be saved, and that's what they're talking about in Revelation. I don't think so. I think it's the remnant that's going to be saved. Absolutely. I think that's what Paul is saying right here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, no, and, and again, then at the, at, in the rest of that chapter, uh, he goes on to talk about the olive tree, that Abraham is the root of it, and, and, and there are branches that are cut off, right? And then there are branches that are grafted in. What are the ones that are cut off? Well, they're, they're unbelieving Israel. What are the ones that are grafted in? The elect from the nations who are being grafted into this one olive tree. But then, but then he, you know, he, he issues a warning to the Gentiles. Don't be arrogant with respect to the Jews. Right? Verse 25. Um, I'm sorry. Verse 21. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. I mean, don't, you know, don't be arrogant and presumptuous about this, thinking, thinking that God is finished with Israelites. He isn't finished with Israelites. He can graft them in. They can be restored. They can, and Paul is a principal example of that. So, yeah, Glenn. Yes, Henry. I'll give you a practical example of that. Uh, in both of our uh, families, uh, they were all Jewish. And during the Reformation, uh, all the uh, countries, if you were not uh, going to be a Catholic, uh, off came the head. Well, uh, our Jewish, uh, from my father's side, um, way back, uh, got into a fishing boat and got into Holland. Why? Because John Calvin was so emphatic in in little tiny Holland, that there were over eight, uh, 900 uh, Reformed churches in there, and they preached the Reformed faith, and that's how Mark preached hmm. our, our, our Jewish relation became hmm. became Christians, and right. and yeah, well, that's neat. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Again, because because as Paul says, he. God hasn't rejected his people. He hasn't rejected his people. The remnant in Israel, the elect remnant, will be saved. Yeah. Felix Mendelssohn was Jewish. The guy, I, I tell you, the guy who taught me this stuff was Jewish. Meredith Klein, who is in the presence of Jesus. Uh, praise be to God. Uh, Meredith Klein taught me this and was himself Jewish and and so was Jesus yeah <laughs> bingo yeah okay well but look we're going to have more time to to process this it's about 6:15 i'm going to um i'm going to uh bring the proceedings to a close um so again i know for some of you this is new but please please hang with me okay hang with me as we do this and um and again i i i'll say this again i'm trying to understand the bible and i hear paul saying god hasn't rejected his people i'm i'm an israelite i am an example of those in whom these promises that god has made uh, are fulfilled all right let's pray Lord Jesus, uh, thank you um, that uh, from before the foundation of the world uh, that you might be exalted and honored as a great, great Savior. Uh, Your Father gave you a people, and you came into the world to secure salvation for that people.
uh, a salvation that would extend uh, as far as the outer reaches of the cosmos. Um, But Lord, what is so stunning is that you have made us to be at the center of that whole redemptive purpose, um, that you might save us having loved us, that you might now cherish us as your treasured possession, that we might be with you uh, a kingdom of priests to your God and our God to your Father and our Father. Uh, Lord, we, um, we bless and praise you for this incredibly high calling and gift. Um, be with us as we go out into this week. Uh, direct our steps. Empower us to walk faithfully before you. We pray in your name. Amen.